Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author, and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. This is a special replay episode, my very first podcast episode. I'm re-releasing this conversation with Shashi Bat, who was when we spoke and is still now at Event Magazine. This being the first episode was very apropos for my personal writing life. Event was my very first poetry publication. My work was selected by then-editor Billet Nickerson. As I head into a summer break that will include a lot of time for my own writing and hit pause on the Right Publish and Shine podcast, I want to share Shashi's message that no subject is off limits and her urge for you to find your original take. You can also listen and experience someone doing something for the first time. My early interviewing skills are a little wobbly, and I offer this up wondering if you might feel inspired to try something new in writing or your other creative pursuits. As the podcast goes on an extended break, I'll leave with that as a challenge, maybe to do something imperfectly for the first time. I know I've benefited from the decision to go ahead with many creative things, this podcast included. So with that in mind, here is my conversation with Shashi Bat, editor of Event. So welcome, Shashi. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here and for being my first interview in this series, uh, Lit Mag Love. And in fact, Event is also the first publication that published my own writing. So it's very apropos. Yes. (laughs) So my first question, I just want to get to know you, the editor, a bit more. So I wanted to find out how did you first fall in love with writing and with books? I think it's hard to remember the first time I fell in love with books. I feel like I've just always been a reader. I was a pretty quiet kid and I feel like quiet kids just read a lot or are expected to read a lot maybe. I do remember when I started to, I guess, appreciate writing more as an art. I remember reading this collection called 21 Great Stories and it had like a lot of the classic stories, you know, the the Telltale Heart and that sort of thing in it. And one of the stories was Luigi Pirandello's War. Um, And it's just this tiny story with a bunch of people who meet on a train and they're talking about the war and their losses in the war. And I just feel like that was the first time I realized that writing was an art and that it took skill to accomplish. And I think that's when I first really started to kind of fall in love with it. Wonderful. And and when when was that? Do you remember what year or where you were at that time? Maybe in like the third or fourth grade, probably. So early on. Yeah, uh, definitely in elementary school at some point. And yeah, I was a kid who spent a lot of time at the library. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> I could definitely relate to that. So what made you realize you were a writer then? Is that when, when that realization happened as well? I was always writing, definitely. I don't think I thought of myself as a writer until probably I was in grad school for writing. (laughs) I, like, uh, in undergrad, I was pre-med, and that was something my family had always 
led me towards, I guess, having Indian parents. They wanted me to be a doctor really badly. So I was pre-med, I was applying to med school. And while I was working on my personal essay for medical school, I realized that I was way more into working on the essay than I was in actually like any of the stuff I would actually be doing at medical school. So I changed directions pretty abruptly and applied to MFA in creative writing programs instead. And that's pretty much when the decision was made. Nice. And you also moved for the love of, of the Lit Mag. That's for events. So you moved to New Westminster mm-hmm. and you didn't know a soul as you wrote on your blog at the time. <laughs> Has this love ever disappointed you and was it worth it? I wouldn't say it's disappointed me. Um, And it's not the first time I moved for, I guess, for work (laughs) either. I think it's something you kind of have to do if you want to pursue a career in writing and publishing. I definitely made some sacrifices leaving behind people and relationships too. But for me, it was totally worth it. Like I love my job. I love working in literary magazines. It's fulfilling in a way that no other job has been. It it kind of reminds me of when I was in school. I always loved my extracurriculars and spent all my time on my extracurriculars. And that's kind of what working on a literary magazine feels like. It doesn't always feel like a job even. Oh, that's wonderful. So it really is true lit mag love. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if you remember, do you remember the first writer you met in real life? And what was that like? Yeah, I think I didn't value it for the experience it was at the time. In undergrad, we all had to take like a first year writing seminar. And I took one in, I think it was personal narrative writing or something like that. And my instructor was, uh, his name was Ogaga Ogin Emerotowo Ifowodo. I remember his name. He was a Nigerian lawyer and activist and had actually been imprisoned for writing political poetry. Um, wow. And I don't think I knew any of this at the time. He was just like my, you know, my instructor who was criticizing my essays. But reading about him after I was kind of amazed. Even now, I feel like I should go order his book or something because I didn't uh, appreciate it at the time. Wow, what an amazing first writer to meet. Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned that you came to be an editor by way of (laughs) pre-med, or you came to be a writer, I guess, let's say you did your MFA. So how, how did you come to actually be an editor? And related to that, what qualities do you think are required to be an editor that are different from reading or writing? Editing-wise, I I guess in school, I had always edited the yearbook (laughs) or like the school arts magazine or whatever. And I I always just liked editorial work and not just the editing itself, but like doing layout design and marketing and like just all... I love how many kind of like different kinds of things you get to work with and different experiences you get. So I when I saw the event job pop up, it just seemed to require all of the skills that I was really interested in using. And until then, I'd just pretty much been teaching creative writing for work. I think in terms of like qualities that editing requires that reading and writing don't, a big one is diplomacy, like working with writers. And I think teaching has helped me a lot with that. And I think writing too, in the sense that uh, maybe I'm more sensitive to writers because I'm also a writer. I guess um, reading 
a piece in a really, it's, it's a different kind of reading when you're editing, you're reading more in- attentively and you have to read it over and over again in like different ways, whether you're looking for artistic concerns or you're just proofreading. So yeah, I think it just requires a kind of attention that uh, writing and just reading for fun don't really require. That makes sense. And so when you talk about diplomacy, do you mean being able to broach difficult changes maybe within a piece or? Yeah. um, And it's like, I know when I first started, like I think one of the first poets I had to send edits to was George Eliot Clark. (laughs) And I was like, who am I to be sending edits to George Eliot Clark? um, And that intimidated me at first until I realized that it's really just a process where, you know, both you and the writer are just trying to get the work to the best place that it can, where it can be. And you're, we're working with them. You're not criticizing them or anything like that. And at event, I don't, I wouldn't say we make or suggest really drastic changes either. When we accept a piece, it's usually pretty close to being finished already. So most of the time it's more kind of proofreading and uh, copy editing and that sort of thing. So when you were finishing and publishing your novel, you obviously were doing a lot of copy edits too. And on the other side, you were the writer in that case. Did that change how you, because you, by that point you were already working as an editor, right? Um, when I was working on my novel, no, I think I'd finished it before I started working really. Okay. <laughs> so it would have informed you in a different sense to, to get you ready for the, for the work as an editor. Yeah. Well, knowing, I guess, how much work goes into writing a novel adds to that like sensitivity towards writers and yeah. seeing like how much editing goes into a work before it's published, maybe. And working with an editor myself on my novel, uh, I guess I saw like what kinds of feedback an editor can give. It's helpful to the writer. Definitely. That's such a valuable experience i i had the same experience with working on my on my book as well yeah seeing that and 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 that ended up informing how i how i approach how i approach editing today and just sort of it's almost like a pay it forward kind of experience i feel like there's such generosity given at some point yeah and it really depends on who the editor is that you work with too like i'm curious what your experience was like how involved they were because it seems to vary a lot from editor to editor it definitely does yeah and i had worked with stan Stan dragland at bamf beforehand so that's who i'm thinking of in particular who just who gave such attention to my piece to my pieces that mm-hmm. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, actually, I just had a story in uh, the Malahat Review, and I thought John Barton was an amazing editor. Like, just the the kinds of nuance he had in his questions uh, really made me think about like how I would respond to other people's work. Nice, nice. And that's so great, just learning from other lit mags. And I want to bring you back to the very first publication you had, which was in the Missouri Review. Um, but what was it like, that experience of first being published? And then, you know, how did you get turned on to lit mags in, in general as a place to publish your writing before publishing a novel or short stories I know that you're working on now, too? Yeah, uh, well, it was incre- incredibly exciting uh, having a story accepted anywhere, really. I was uh, well doing my MFA in fiction at the time, so it was kind of a relief even to just have anything <laughs> published. Like, it meant I hadn't just thrown my life away <laughs> by getting an MFA. And I, I remember, too, it was kind of, there was this, like, weird competition between people in my fiction workshop, like, 
who was going to get published first. And like over the summer, everyone returned and like suddenly everyone had publications. So this is weird, weird competitive environment. And doesn't that seem odd now when you just realize how really enchant space being published in a journal can be too? (laughs) Yeah. Like now I guess I think of writing more as a, like, you know, there's a writing community and I feel like people are pretty supportive of each other, but at the time it really felt like, like intense, I guess for the question about like how I started or became interested in literary magazines. I was always drawn to short stories, writing short stories more than novels. So uh, publishing in literary magazines just kind of made sense. And I I guess I never thought of literary magazines as like some people seem to view it as the stepping stone to publishing a book. Um, and I never really saw it that way. Like, I just really like publishing in literary magazines because you can publish before you have a book length work finished. You can experiment a little more without having to commit to a longer work. Yeah. And then once I was in grad school, I just started reading a lot more literary magazines. So I guess that's when it, when I realized it was an option even to, to have work published there. Nice. And I guess you were joining in the competition too. Right. (laughs) I'm wondering if you still learn about writing from reading submissions. Is that something that you find is still informing your own writing? Yeah, I would say so. Um, Particularly with poetry, because I've never really been a poet and uh, only recently have started writing more poetry of my own. I feel like I'm still understanding like the limits of what you can get away with in poetry. So I love seeing uh, like poem submissions where the writers are really experimenting. It just kind of gives me inspiration for my own writing. Like, for example, uh, one of the first poems I read in an event when I, when I first started was an Ellie Sawatsky poem. Uh, trying to remember the name. What's it called? Overnights at the hospital. <laughs> and it's what I teach in my class now, but the whole thing is just like list a list of places where the speaker has slept. Like I've slept here and I've slept here, I've slept here. And then the last three lines of the poem say something like, not in the chair beside my father's bed. This is what it feels like to be awake. And it just like blew my mind that the whole poem is this list and you you don't see that twist of an ending coming. Um, and like she's a fairly new poet from what I understand and that still really surprised me so I'm I'm definitely still you know surprised by things every day and learning things um, from the writing okay when we first talked about lit mags a couple years ago you told me that publishing in literary journals is a street cred that shows agents and editors you're serious and so I'm just wondering what you think about the area of self-publishing and the greater question here might even be, are we still relevant? Do you know, do, do lit mags still matter? Or how, how do you, how do you think that? Uh, I guess I always think of self-publishing as just its own category. Like there's, you know, traditional publishing and self-publishing. And I don't know if, at least the way I see those categories hasn't changed too much. I think your choice of which one of those to pursue just really depends on what goals are as a writer, uh, like how much creative input you want, how much control you want to keep, what kind of audience you want to reach. So I do think literary magazines are still very much relevant, particularly for writers who want to go the traditional route. Like one of the great things about literary magazines is it 
they open up opportunities to be published in uh, anthologies, like things like Best Canadian Stories or Best Canadian Essays, or to be eligible for prizes like the National Magazine Awards or the Journey Prize. So reaching those like bigger audiences or like having access to that kind of Camlet world. I feel like literary magazines can open the doors in a way. And I do think it still looks great when you are trying to, you know, query an agent or an editor and you tell them I've been published in Room and the Mall Hut and so on. And they can see that you've uh, kind of like done your work in the trenches (laughs) before you're trying to publish your novel or what have you. Yeah, that you've cut your teeth and you have experience working with an editor and you... Yeah, and that you're a professional, I guess, in some ways, like you've been diligent about submitting your stuff. And <laughs> I think that, that counts for something. Yeah, you're 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 going to show up. You're someone who's yeah. <laughs> ready to be seen in your writing too. Mm-hmm. So I know the first readers at event are volunteers and they're typically students. I think that's, is that correct? Yeah. And and they end up, so the process, as far as I understand, is they do the first reading of submissions and then they send the yeses and maybes to one of your editors who then selects the top ones to be discussed depending on the genre. So you and the poetry editor meet together or you have a fiction board. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the meetings that you have and maybe any recent battles that you've had over pieces? Sure. Um, Let's see. I guess the fiction meetings I can talk about, they tend to be pretty interesting. So there are four of us on the fiction committee. It's me, our managing editor, our fiction editor, and then our reviews editor is also on that committee. We meet over lunch, which makes it a little more pleasant. We usually discuss like four or five stories at a meeting. We read them in advance and we each prepare our comments on them and we put them in categories. So it's strong publish, weak publish, weak uh, reject, and then strong reject. (laughs) And sometimes people are on the fence, but then other people get irritated about that, etc. But we go around the table and each person just shares their opinion on a particular story. And then we open it up to discussion. We kind of see where we all stand on the story. Most of the time, I would say we agree on on whether to accept a story or not. But like, I remember our last fiction meeting, every story, we were split half and half on it. And sometimes it's just a matter of personal preference or like a matter of one person might prioritize the quality of the prose over the like how organic the plot is, for example. So it can lead to some really interesting discussions. Let's see, recent battles we've had over pieces. I can't think of one where we were really torn. There is a category that's like rarely used, not over my uh, dead body. When you really, there's a story you really don't want to have accepted. And there's only one time I can think of that I categorized a story that way. Yeah, but those ones can be a little bit controversial, I guess. And what was the reason? Was it that it was a controversial piece or... It was, I guess the piece itself wasn't controversial, but it had some content in it involving abuse. And it wasn't, it wasn't that like abuse wasn't a topic we could publish, but the way it depicted it felt kind of like it was sensationalizing it or it was gratuitous in a way. And that bothered me a lot. So yeah, that wasn't one I would have wanted to publish, but I don't think the other people on our committee were really 
arguing against that either. So, yeah. It wasn't on their must-publish list. No. (laughs) Stepping away from the replay of my conversation with Shashi Bat from Event Magazine, this is my last call for you to submit to the Mum Egg Review. They are open for submissions of poetry, fiction, creative prose, and art for an issue-themed Mother Figures. They seek work that engages with archetypes of mother in history, religion, pop culture, TV shows or movies, mythology, fairy tales, and more. Submissions will close on July 15th. You can find information and guidelines at momeggreview.com slash submit. I'll mention here too, before I go on break, if you'd like to do an ad exchange like this one with me, I'm open for new bookings for September. You can find out more at rachelthompson.co slash ads. Tell me what event is looking for in submissions. So from logistics to the quality to the forms, whether you're looking for more experimental work or not. So we accept submissions in fiction, poetry, and nonfiction. And we don't have a particular like genre or type of work that we're looking for. It's more just we're looking for quality and we're looking to be surprised. With fiction, we're always just kind of looking for compelling plots, well-drawn characters, uh, polished prose. Um, and I personally am always just looking to be moved by a story. Like if it affects me emotionally, that's a definite plus. Same thing with poetry. I think think we like poems that don't take themselves too seriously. Yeah, that aren't trying too hard. I lean towards narrative poems, um, but we publish really all kinds of poetry. Uh, We're looking for arresting images uh, and again, just emotional impact. Nonfiction, we get most of our nonfiction submissions through our annual contest. Uh, we hold it once a year and we have two or three winners each year, but then we also consider all of the submissions for publication. So that's where most of our nonfiction comes from. Oh, and we've also started accepting online submissions uh, just within the past year. We've switched to submittable, so everything can be submitted online. So what kind of writing do you personally want to see more of? And what would you rather not see again? I take it, you know, sensational abuse stories, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what, yeah. what would you rather not see for a long time too? I think that's the only category of work I would rather not see. There's no there's no real topic that I would like outlaw or anything like that because I think anything that's written about well can be interesting. I'd love to see more risk-taking. Magic realism is a category that we don't see a lot of, and I'm always a fan of. We're actually starting, uh, or we're, we're holding this contest uh, in the upcoming months called the Let Down Your Hair Contest. And it's going to be for speculative writing in either fiction or poetry. So just short work that uses sci-fi or fantasy or otherworldly elements. So that's something I definitely would love to see more of. And we're even encouraging it in the form of a contest. Yeah, I love the name, Let Down Your Hair. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that was the idea of uh, JJ Lee, who's uh, one of our advisory board members. Oh, nice. <laughs> So what should a writer expect? Let's say their work is accepted and they've made the cut, you know, they submitted fiction 
for poetry and you've said yes. Do you make developmental suggestions on pieces or are you mainly doing copy edits? Um, we usually don't do a lot of developmental suggestions. Usually when we accept a work, it's only needs really like minor edits. Uh, there are exceptions. Like recently we accepted a story where the idea was just so great. Like the premise was so haunting. It like sticks in your head and uh, none of us could really let go of the story, even though we did have concerns with like, there were a couple of logical questions and uh, like the prose needed a little bit of work. Uh, so we accepted it conditionally and that's one where I'll be working with the writer and doing a little more back and forth than we usually do. But that's really rare. I think it's just because the quality of the submissions is so high that we don't normally need to accept stories that need more work. So, yeah, when a piece is accepted, it'll go through, like, one copy editing phase where we might, like, write to the writer and have questions on, like, you know, why does this happen at this point? And maybe this could be moved, but it's usually pretty minor. And then it'll go through a proofreading phase. And that's pretty much it. And so the piece that you are working on a bit more substantively, um, are you, like, is it? You're lopping off the ending? Are you doing like a bigger overhaul throughout the piece? Or can you tell us a bit more about the type of changes you're suggesting? Yeah. Um, so one is like, I guess I would call it a language overhaul. It just had some maybe like sec second language errors and like, yeah, those are more like, I guess, errors at the line level. But then there were also some questions about character motivations that we couldn't understand or felt like needed a little more explanation. But yeah, the story as a whole was so great and so original that it was worth, worth it to us to, to figure out those concerns. That's so exciting when a piece is so strong in spite of some of the weaknesses like that, that you want to, you really want yeah. to. And it was by an uh, emerging writer. So it's always nice to kind of like have that opportunity to encourage someone who's at that stage of their career. Yeah. So talking about submissions generally, what proportion would you say could be published an event if you had all the space and all the time in the world like of the submissions how much are at a quality I guess where you don't need to do that developmental work um, mm -hmm. and they're you know almost ready to go you just need to do line edits and some copy editing and proofreading I would say uh, it's probably changed since we started taking online submissions because we get so many more submissions now but I would say it's still probably under 5%, which sounds really low and I don't want to be discouraging to writers. I think it's more that uh, like a lot of people submit work that isn't quite finished yet. So the work that is really polished just kind of rises to the top. And yeah, it probably is a still a pretty small percentage. Yeah. So then you would say you publish maybe 3%, but only 5% is ready to go? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Nice. And so, yeah, I guess that leaves sort of 2%. And that's what I was saying before when you were talking about grad school, where it was so competitive too, where it kind of becomes a bit arbitrary at that point when there's really good quality work and you only have room for that three out of five. Yeah, because then it becomes a decision based on, you know, sometimes subject matter, like maybe you have three stories about uh, domestic dramas, and so you don't want to take the fourth one. So there are, you know, reasons you might reject writing uh, that, that aren't based on the quality of the writing. And 
you mentioned that a lot of people submit pieces that maybe just aren't quite ready yet that needed to go through another Mm-hmm. what clues you into that or what are the more common mistakes that you see in submissions uh it's mostly just like sloppy writing at the line level like it looks like it hasn't been edited carefully and that's it's kind of a red flag i guess because if there are like issues at that level then you wonder like what deeper issues does this story have i guess the other thing is just if a story lacks originality, that's a mark against it. Yeah, that's probably the number one criteria, I guess. Yeah, and, and originality just in writing you're seeing generally, or you mean something you, you haven't recently published an event? Well, it could be originality in like subject matter or voice or maybe the like the way the events turn out is somewhat predictable. So it can really be in anything, I would say. And when we spoke before, um, the very first time we spoke was it was an interview for Lit Mag Love on Room Magazine on their website. Mm-hmm. And we both were talking about the stories about North Americans in their 20s feeling emotionally lost while traveling in other countries. And it was just an interesting note. And I've spoken to other Lit Mag editors since then, and it doesn't seem to be as co- as common for all magazines, or it doesn't seem to be a common story that all magazines receive, but oh, definitely really? okay. it's one that Room and Event does receive. So, you know, sort of why, why that is, I'm not sure. But um, I guess we also can both I, I can anyway, and I think you've mentioned before, p- think of pieces that we published recently that were actually in this vein. So sometimes I wonder, is it more that newer, less experienced writers tend to fall upon this subject and there's newer writers are submitting to us? Or is the trope really one that's overdone? Hmm. What do you think? I, yeah, I think it can definitely be done well still. I mean, I don't know if there are any topics that like haven't been written about. So, and yeah, we definitely have published like some, one of my favorite stories in event uh, was one of those stories about a 20 something traveler. I wonder if like maybe just a lot of people have that experience and that's why everyone's writing about it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Something wakes up the writer (laughs) in them as they're traveling, I guess, or they just have time to write finally when they're traveling. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it might be just like the age, like when you're in your mid-20s, you suddenly have the money to travel. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, I've had that experience. I haven't written about it, but that's probably just because I've seen all of the all the stories about it already <laughs> yeah same i definitely have stories i could tell and i think ah yeah i've seen so many of these already i don't need to write another one yeah so uh, i want to shift gears a bit and talk about um diversity and just ways of addressing that within the lit mag community because um it's a bit of a buzzword right now but it also you know represents a truly urgent need to make sure you know, more perspectives and voices are reflected in literature in Canada and the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, we talked about this a little bit before, and I'd love to hear, you know, hear what you told me before again, but also any anything that you might have done in the interim in terms of steps that event is taking to let writers of all backgrounds know that their work is welcome and will be considered and published in the journal. 
Mm, um, well, there are a few things we do, like, for example, during the times when we solicit work, like we have a notes on writing issue every year where we publish reflections by writers on their writing lives. And uh, for that, I contact four or five writers and ask them to submit pieces. Sometimes our poetry editor also solicits work or like just ask certain writers to submit. And when we do those sorts of things, we always look for a diverse group of writers to ask. I think it probably helps to that like while we're choosing work for the issue, we try to choose work that reflects the diverse makeup of readers we have. And we try to cover a broad range of even like character voices or stories that are set in a variety of places. So people reading it or writers reading it can see themselves reflected in it. And hopefully that helps them know that their work is welcome. As our staff too, we have like, we try to have a diverse staff or when we can, we have uh, women of color. I mean, I'm a woman of color and on our advisory board, we have women of color. Our poetry editor is Joanne Arnott, um, who's an Aboriginal writer. And um, with her help and with the help of... uh, we work with we work at Douglas College and they have an Aboriginal Student Services office. So we've been working with them and started putting together this annual event called Aboriginal Voices, which is uh, an evening of poetry and prose where we feature a bunch of different uh, local Aboriginal writers reading their work. Uh, we invite community members and we also invite those writers to submit work to events. So I guess in those sorts of like different ways we try to reach out to community members and show them that we we are looking for a broad range of voices for the magazine. Yeah, that's wonderful. Through I guess maybe through through that program, through the festival or but also just generally can you tell me a bit about what writers you've discovered through event and and who you continue to read today? Sure. Um, Joretta Lau is a big one. She event had published her work before I came on, and she was a Journey Prize finalist for her story, uh, which became the title story of her collection, How Does a Single Blade of Grass Thank the Sun? I love that and, book. Oh, so good. Yeah, that was a book I probably wouldn't have known about if it hadn't been for event, and I just loved it and recommended it to everyone after I read it. <laughs> there are also a lot of new writers who don't have books yet that I've discovered through event and now I just kind of keep an eye out for their work in other literary magazines. People like Gina Ellett who won our nonfiction contest a couple of years ago or Jane Campbell who's also had some of her nonfiction published in event. Yeah so and people who when they do have books come out I'll definitely be buying them. Nice yeah isn't that isn't that just wonderful? You get to sort of know them before they're even well known, and you know they're going to be stars at some point. Too. Yeah, it's like the insider scoop. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about the piece that you selected and and why you published it and why you selected it for the podcast? Sure. Um, the piece is called Bacchanalia. Uh, it's by Marsha Walker. Uh, it was published in Event Forty Five Two, and coincidentally, it is one of those stories about twenty-something uh, North American traveling and discovering herself in a of way. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, but I, I really love this story. It's so the narrator is 
traveling. She's in London first, uh, but then she kind of starts to wander and ends up lost, runs out of money. And then she's in a campsite in Greece and meets these three other travelers who uh, they have their own sort of mini theater troupe, except they don't perform for other people. They only perform for themselves and uh, they say it so they can find the truth, which uh, is kind of funny and interesting. And so she falls in with them and uh, finds belonging in a way, like she's quite a lost character. And that I guess that is the trope. But then things get thrown up in the air. I don't want to give away the ending, but things change in a really interesting way uh, and really poignant way too, I think. like The, the ending is kind of a lump in your throat ending uh, that stays in your head too um what i like about this story is like it's really palpable how lost this character is but she's also really likable in her lostness and it's 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 quite an imaginative story and even though it is about the lost 20 something year old it's not a like a brooding story it's a really lively and fun story at the same time I just what I love is just hearing your enthusiasm for the story too. Just tell that, <laughs> that it's one that you really enjoyed reading and publishing too. That's great. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you a couple more things. So one, is it possible for writers who want to get involved behind the scenes at an event to do so? And and how would they do that? Um, it's definitely possible. Uh, we have volunteers as first readers, and also sometimes we take on volunteers to do things like help with like organizing submissions or with uh, social media pages and things like that. And to get in touch with us, if you're interested in volunteering, you would just go to our website, eventmagazine.ca, uh, and under the, there's the contact tab. So if you go under there, it has all the details on how to contact us. Um, we usually also offer uh, one paid internship per year. It just depends on funding. And yeah, if you check into our website, we post opportunities there too. Great. And then the other question is just how can writers submit their work? How often do you have you know, reading specific reading periods? And then I want to emphasize too that it is writers from all over the world who can submit and publish mm-hmm. that too, right? Yeah. Uh, so right now we accept work only online through Submittable. Uh, if you go to the event website, uh, there's a, a link to submit. And yeah, all of the work is collected there. Yeah. So people can find out more on eventmagazine.ca. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> well, thank you, Shashi, so much for being here today and for being my inaugural interview. Just uh, wonderful to um, have the opportunity to talk to you and hear about your, you know, your journey towards becoming an editor, but also your enthusiasm for for publishing the written word is is great. Yeah, likewise, lovely to talk to you, and thanks for having me. So that was my first podcast interview with Shashi Bat, editor of Event. Still true as it was when we spoke a few years ago, Event publishes in print three times per year. They publish fiction, poetry, nonfiction, and reviews, and they pay for submissions. Another thing I'll note about Event that they offer that's kind of cool is a reading service for writers. So if you're looking for someone who will give you a really good read of your writing, they will take a piece and they will do an assessment of about 700 to 1,000 words that details the strengths and weaknesses and provides recommendations for revision. And everything that you actually send to the reading service is also considered for publication. 
A good takeaway from this conversation, I believe, is you want to copy edit and proofread your work. It's an obvious one, but mistakes at that level signal to her that in fact there may be problems at the developmental level with the submission. That totally makes sense when you think about it. This is something that writers ask me all the time. Does it need to be perfect before I send it in? It definitely needs to have been copy edited and proofread several times. I loved that Shashi said no subject is off limits, but to try for an original take on some of the more familiar subjects. And I especially loved how the example piece she spoke about in this episode is a perfect example of this, the 20-something traveler story that we've seen a lot of, yet in this case had an original take. And thanks again to episode sponsor Mom Egg Review. Don't forget to submit your poetry, fiction, creative prose, and art to Mom Egg Review's Mother Figures. That issue has a deadline of July 15th, and you can find information and guidelines at momeggreview.com slash submit. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, sign up for my writerly love letters. They're typically sent every other Thursday, though I am going on a summer hiatus, as I've mentioned, so they'll be back in August. If this episode encouraged you to try for an original take or maybe do something imperfectly for the first time, I would love to hear from you. You can tag me on social media. I'm at Rachel Thompson on Twitter or at Rachel Thompson Author on Instagram. And tell other Luminous writers about this episode. You can do this by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or tell them to search for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you for listening. I encourage you to keep rising to the challenge, trying new things, and writing luminously this summer. I will return with new episodes in September. Shashi Bat spoke with me from the traditional unceded territory of the Quaquat First Nation and the Quaquantlam First Nation, aka New Westminster, BC. And I was recording while a guest on the traditional territories of the Kenyan, Kehaka, and the Anishinaabeg peoples that it is colonially known as Montreal, Quebec. <laughs> <laughs>